When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If President Trump really wants to buy Greenland, he better act fast before it all melts. The lead starts right now. After being disinvited, then reinvited, essentially, Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib is now saying she will not visit the West Bank, not on Israel's terms, she says. And now the controversy President Trump started with a tweet is getting even uglier and more personal. Betting on the economy and rattled by the warning signs, does President Trump have any new ideas besides throwing shade at the Fed? Plus, an American mother's heartbreaking battle in Saudi Arabia, a Saudi judge ruling she cannot have custody of her young daughter because she's too Western. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin with the world lead today and the standoff continuing between two U.S. members of Congress versus President Trump and the government of Israel. After that country barred the first two Muslim women elected to the U.S. House of Representatives to make an official visit following pressure from President Trump to block them. The Israeli government did allow Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who has relatives in the West Bank, to visit on humanitarian grounds, specifically to see her elderly grandmother, but Tlaib today rejected that offer because, she says, Israel told her she could not promote the boycott of Israel while there. Tlaib saying in a statement, quote, when I won the election to become a United States congresswoman, many Palestinians, especially my grandmother, felt a sense of hope, a hope that they would finally have a voice. I cannot allow the Israeli government to take that away from them or to use my deep desire to see my grandmother potentially for the last time as a political bargaining chip, unquote. The Israeli interior minister today said of Tlaib's decision, quote, her hatred of Israel is stronger than her love of her grandmother. CNN's Oren Lieberman is live for us now in Jerusalem. And Oren, you spoke with Tlaib's family in the West Bank. What is their reaction to all this? We went to the village of Bet Or, just north of Jerusalem, which is the ancestral home of Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. And her family supports her in this decision. They say Israel's restrictions are unfair in a form of oppression, and they support her in that they say she should only come visit if it's as a duly elected sitting member of the U.S. Congress, not under Israeli restrictions. We are against the conditional visit of Rashida to Palestine. Rashida has the right to visit Palestine as a Palestinian, regardless of being a congresswoman, as any citizen with a U.S. passport has the right to come and visit their family without any conditions or pressure. Her uncle even suggested that maybe they would try to get visas for her elderly grandmother and make the trip to the U.S., which Jake might only start this same fight on that side of the Atlantic. Right. And, and Oren, Israel had originally said that Congresswoman Tlaib and Omar could visit. They changed their minds after pressure from President Trump. Netanyahu is facing re-election in a month. What favors might he want from Trump to, to help him get re-elected? and a very difficult re-election campaign with a fractured right-wing voter base at that. There is no doubt that Trump is a big part of Netanyahu's re-election campaign. They're on billboards together in Tel Aviv. Netanyahu's messaging is very much about Trump because Trump is more popular here than he is in the U.S. 
Trump gave Netanyahu huge political gifts before the April election, U.S. recognition of Israeli sovereignty in the Golan Heights, adding the Iran, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps to the terror list, which Netanyahu took partial credit for. What could it be this time to try to get Netanyahu over the line? Well, it could be something uh, smaller like a defense pact, perhaps a visit from Trump to Israel. He could even see the settlement named after him in the Golan Heights. Or it could be even bigger. Perhaps Trump would acknowledge that Israel has some sort of right to annex settlements in the West Bank. And that would be an enormous statement overturning decades of U.S. foreign policy, which Trump has certainly done in the past when it comes to Israel. Jake, on that last one, depending on if Trump goes that way and what he says, that might even supersede Israeli law because Israel has never recognized Israeli sovereignty in West Bank settlements. All right, Oren, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's chew over all this with uh, my experts here. Uh, David Urban, let me start with you. You're a Trump 2020 campaign advisor. Take a listen to former Senator Joe Lieberman, the, the only uh, Jew, Jewish American who's been on a major party's presidential ticket, um, talking to CNN about this issue this morning. He's a very strong supporter of Israel and actually has been supportive of, of Trump's relationship with Israel. I think it was a serious mistake um, because it's contrary to the to the values of the state of Israel, the values of the United States of America, which have been the underlying foundation of our relationship. What do you think? Yeah, look, so I, I think there's a you know, this is a this is a pretty complicated situation here, right? This isn't just two ordinary Congress people going there to take in both sides of the issue. I, I think, you know, I. I Dug down a little bit, obviously, when you look at the group MIFTA, who was their sponsor here, obviously read, had led uh, another group of uh, congressional folks over before into, for, for a trip. But the, the, the group founded by Hannah Shwari, who's, uh, who's been a, kind of a pillar in, in uh, Palestinian politics for a long time, they, they refused to sign you know, the terror, that, that they're not going to par- take part in terror, right? They refused to condemn, they've even glorified one of the first female uh, Palestinian suicide bombers who blew herself up. And uh, and killed one 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 Jewish settler and and, and uh, injured another 150. They, right. they called her a part of the resistance. Not they don't come out and condemn that. So I would say if uh, if the two congressmen were there going there to collect facts and hear from both sides, it's a little bit different situation than going there and, and with with a group that has clear terrorist ties and, and not denouncing that, not saying like this these guys are on you know on the on the on clearly crossing a line. You know, I understand BDS, but. But associating with a group like that's pretty tough. So MIFTA uh, has been getting notice in the last day or so. Barry Weiss of The New York Times uh, wrote a column saying that she thinks that Netanyahu made a mistake here. But she also criticized Omar and Tlaib for noxious views uh, about Israel. And she wrote that about MIFTA, uh, that it's an organization that's proudly praised female suicide bombers and pushed the medieval uh, blood libel. Uh, is it fair to hold Omar and Tlaib responsible for the actions of MIFTA? Uh, what, what do you make of it all? Well, I think it's fascinating that MIFTA has actually taken other members of Congress into Israel and hasn't had an issue. So that makes one wonder, well, why these two in particular? Is it because they are Muslim women in Congress? Is it because they're women of color when clearly Israel has held up the standard of freedom of speech that all democracies throughout, like advanced democracies in the world, hold up? And they're taking now a lead, unfortunately, from uh, the more right-wing, fundamentalist, nationalistic sentiments that are rising throughout the globe. And unfortunately, we're dealing that with that here in the United States as well. And, and uh, Jackie, a spokesman for the Israeli Interior Minister, gave CNN a copy of the letter submitted by Congresswoman Tlaib yesterday asking for the humanitarian permission to visit her family. And she says in the letter, I will respect any restrictions and will not promote boycotts against Israel uh, during my visit. I, I mean, she has every right to change her mind, but she did not express a, uh, any um, concern there. Well, right. And, and perhaps it's because of, you know, everything that happened in the intervening um, days. Right. I know that she sent that. However, it, it does seem like uh, now she has 
there's a reason for her to um, this is it's creating a lot more um, interest in BDS. It's creating um, the boycott, divest and sanction yes. movement, boycotting Israel, which, yeah. which is which is one of the reasons that they were told that they couldn't come. So because it's a law in Israel to not let yes. boycotters in. Yeah, exactly. Um, but these are members of Congress, so it is a little bit different. That said, um, yes, she did change her mind, but she also uh, has been getting a lot of attention and has become a a a, uh, I don't want to say rock star, but she's become a focal point of this movement now. Something that Republicans are going to remind Democrats quite a bit as we go toward 2020. Um, but, you know, there's if she went, perhaps she would be seeding that a little bit. But I think it's fair to call her a rock star in the progressive left. Well, yeah, gonna... It's brought more attention strategically than I think Bibi or Trump would have wanted um, on uh, the issue in particular of Israeli-Palestinian politics, uh, which is div- the effort to divide the Democratic Party along these lines is actually only united people across the political spectrum who believe that this is actually a national security threat to democracy, right? If another country can determine if a member of Congress can come in or not, and that country is a democracy, and, and, the, an president, yeah. and the president of the United States is the one saying, don't respect my political opponents, that is telling everybody that the president of the United States is now willing to throw his political opponents under the bus and not defend average citizens overseas who may not agree with him. And, and Laura, one of the very interesting ramifications of all this was a response from Senator Bernie Sanders, obviously one of the leading presidential candidates, who tweeted today, if Prime Minister Netanyahu doesn't want members of Congress to visit Israel, then maybe he can respectfully decline $3.8 billion in annual funding, the largest amount of U.S. aid to any country. That escalated quickly. It did. And Sanders has had a history of being further to the left on this foreign policy than a lot of the rest of the field. We know that he's pushed the field on Medicare for all. He's also pushed the field when it comes to his viewpoints of Israel. And he's he's uh, also in line with more in line with Tlaib and with Omar than some of the other members of Congress. But what's interesting here, too, is that despite uh, repeated efforts by by members like Steny Hoyer, the majority whip, even by Kevin McCarthy, who said that he thought that they should be allowed in. As soon as Trump tweeted this out, uh, Israel took a different stance and decided against letting these members in. And is that one of the goals here of President Trump to create some tension and division in the Democratic Party? So as Jackie points out, right, look, again, uh, you know, they, it does elevate the issue. It does make it bigger. It does make them cause their, you know, kind of cause celeb amongst amongst BD, the BDS movement. But but to Jackie's point earlier, I think you'll hear a lot about this in the fall, right? There'll be uh, a, a, it'll be a wedge issue whether you know Democrats should support you know uh, whoever the candidate is because they're they're not they're pro pro Israel enough. That'll be. But you did see APAC come out and say yeah. that they disagreed mm-hmm. with Netanyahu, uh, which was very noteworthy because they usually back Israel no matter who's president, no matter what's happening. But I think it's fair yeah, to but, say that Talib and, and Omar, whoever the nominee is, they're going to be pressed on Talib and Omar yeah. and their and, views. And, and also the BDS movement in general, which Absolutely. is getting a lot, which is, which is not very, you know, APAC friendly. Everyone stick around. We've got a lot more to talk about. Trump, the president, going back to his days as Trump, the real estate mogul and getting the cold shoulder from an American ally in the process. We'll explain. The politics lead recent warnings about a recession have President Trump rattled, according to a Republican source talking to The Washington Post. A source tells CNN that while on vacation this week in New Jersey, the president held conference calls with bank CEOs to gauge their thoughts on the economy. As CNN's Pamela Brown now reports, the fears that the president is expressing in private come as he starts to publicly hedge on previous promises to take action on gun control. It's not the gun that pulls the trigger. It's the person holding the gun. 
President Trump with a notable shift on possible gun reform legislation following last week's deadly mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton, telling supporters in New Hampshire he will focus on mental illness. Years ago, many cities and states, I remember it so well, closed mental institutions for budgetary reasons. They let those people out onto the street. We're going to have to give major consideration to building new facilities for those in need. We have to do it. While not bringing up expanded background checks, an issue many Republicans object to, but that Trump pledged to pass. Frankly, uh, we need intelligent background checks. A senior administration official telling CNN today that Trump still supports expanding background checks after hinting they may not be necessary in an interview with CNN affiliate WMUR. We're coming up with a plan if we can. Uh, remember this, we have a lot of background checks already. Trump did tout the economy from the stage last night. You have no choice but to vote for me because you're 401ks. So whether you love me or hate me, you got to vote for me. While a booming economy is key to his 2020 re-election strategy. And together we are making America wealthy again. <laughs> Privately, the president is worrying over a potential economic downturn, calling bank CEOs this week for an assessment of the economy. One Republican telling The Washington Post he's rattled. Meanwhile, sources say the president has suggested the U.S. should buy the island of Greenland from Denmark on multiple occasions, with the White House Counsel's Office looking into the possibility. The 80 percent ice-covered island is home to a U.S. military base, important to America's national security defenses. And while Trump isn't the only president who's tried to purchase the island, Harry Truman offered $100 million in gold in 1946, the island's government releasing a statement today saying, quote, Greenland is not for sale. And J.T.'s recent discussions in the administration about buying Greenland adds an interesting layer ahead of President Trump's visit to Denmark in just a couple of weeks. Jake? All right. Pamela Brown, thanks so much. Uh, let's talk about the economy. Uh, Laura, I want to start with you. A Republican uh, close to the administration told the Washington Post, quote, uh, he thinks that all the people that do this economic forecasting are a bunch of establishment weenies, elites who don't know anything about the real economy, and they're against Trump. So, I mean, th that's his view when people come on TV and talk about, mm -hmm. you know, the global recession and concerns about whether or not that's going to hit here. Right. But these reports, what Politico reported on it this week as well, are from, uh, you know, the experts, people in Wall Street who are concerned about the fact that they think a recession could come as early as next year. So uh, there's all signs pointing towards that, whether it's a manufacturing turn down, whether it's the inverted curve yield that everyone's been talking about this week. Um, and so yesterday during the rally, it was clear that Trump was taking a hard line saying the economy is doing great, that if you want to keep it churning the way it has been, that you have to vote for me because that's mm -hmm. the only way, he said that, that's the only way um, that it'll keep going. But now, today, we have the reports that it looks like he is actually nervous because if it were to take a downturn, it could dramatically hurt his re-election chances. And David, I want to talk about the plans. I do want to disclose um, that you lobby for energy, defense, and transportation <laughs> sectors. Everybody. Well, I will, I will, well, just because energy comes into this, the president's top trade advisor told CNN that, uh, today that the administration does have a plan to stave off a recession. And it is, uh, well, let's take a listen. We have a clear economic plan. You may disagree with how the policies work, but tax cuts, deregulation, uh, fair and reciprocal trade, unleashing our energy sector. But are there plans for anything 
going forward as this global recession starts to hit our shores? Yeah, I mean, other than what Peter Navarro just articulated there, right, I, I don't know if there's a more granular plan than that laid out any place. Look, I, I would say that there's always a recession around the corner, right? There's always an economic, with an economic upturn, there's always an economic downturn. It's just the question of when that occurs, right? You saw Janet Yellen, who's out the other day, or maybe, I don't know exactly, yesterday or today, saying, like, there's, she doesn't say recession on the horizon, right? And mm-hmm. She's no uh, Trump supporter or Trump fan. And so there, there are mixed messages here. The economy, unemployment low, consumer optimism high, consumer spending still going. So I think you see some of the uptick in the market because of that. Look, if, if you're the president, you got to worry about that, right? Because that is the single thing that this president has going for him that everybody says, look, I, I don't mind the, the tweets. I don't mind anything because the economy is going so strong. That's you always hear because the economy is going so strong. Right. And Jackie, if that, if that's pulled out from under him. That's trouble. And, and Jackie, as Laura noted, uh, the president said he's he's the reason for the economy thriving. So well, take a listen. You have no choice but to vote for me because your 401ks down the tubes. Everything's going to be down the tubes. So whether you love me or hate me, you got to vote for me. Now, just as a factual <laughs> matter, Obama in his last 29 months, uh, more jobs were created than Trump in his first 29 months. But I haven't really heard Democrats making that argue, argument as aggressively as Trump makes the counterargument. Details, details. <laughs> uh, you know, no, you haven't heard Democrats. Democrats have talked more about who is not benefiting from this current economy. People who have been left behind, perhaps the middle class, people with rising health care costs. Uh, 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 minorities. The, minorities. Mm-hmm. That's who you're hearing Democrats focus more on than perhaps the the, the entire economy. That said, uh, with what Wall Street's doing right now, I don't really want to look at my 401k. Yeah, but let's I'm let's not going to look at why, it right Let's now. talk about why Democrats are talking about it not working for people. Because while you have people consumer confidence high, because Trump has been telling us the economy is great, look at GDP, it's growing. Consumer, that, that means we're spending money, but businesses, the second indicator, investment is down. That means businesses who got this tax cut did not reinvest it back into communities. They use that money to buy back shares, to increase their own profits. All along this time, wages have not increased. So all this rhetoric we're hearing about the macro level economy, if you look at the indicators and underneath the hood, it's not helping average people. He inherited a robust economy from Barack Obama. Two years in, yeah. if it fails, it is on Donald yeah, Trump. But that's not true. So real wage growth at the, bo- at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum has grown dramatically, right? In, in, in non-supervisory and uh, production. Yeah, at the very work. bottom, at the yeah, very top. Right. So it, it has grown. Right, the it bigger has, chunk. And, and uh, you know, so, so it, it, it is going well. It's, it's going to continue to go well as long as, you know, we get something done here. I think the market's looking for China. If something gets done up with China here in the not-too-distant future, I think mm-hmm. there'll be, be a rope. Uh, right, right from your mouth to God's ears. She's ears. <laughs> uh, a big scare. Uh, several pressure cookers placed throughout New York City as police are now searching for who left America's largest city on edge. Stay with us. It's some breaking news for you now. The New York Times is reporting the results of the autopsy of pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. The multimillionaire died in a New York jail last weekend. CNN's Bryn Gingras joins me from New York. Uh, Bryn, uh, what can you tell us? Yeah, that's right. So the medical examiner here in New York determining that Jeffrey Epstein died suicide by hanging. This obviously just silences, Jake, any conspiracies that were out there saying anything other than the fact that it was a suicide that happened inside uh, that jail cell over the weekend uh, for Jeffrey Epstein. Of course, this is consistent with what law enforcement sources have been telling us ever since then, uh, that they believed that he killed himself inside that cell. But certainly this doesn't answer many questions as of yet. 
as to what happened. Why was he left alone for so long, not monitored by the guards? Uh, but this, of course, is going to help investigators, right? Because it gives the cause and manner. It will give the time of death of Jeffrey Epstein, and that will help investigators continue to try to answer all these questions that so many people have at this point. Jake. All right, Brent Gingras with the breaking news. Thank you so much. Also on our national lead today, the hunt. For the man who caused a bomb scare in New York City today, surveillance fo- video shows him leaving two rice cookers at a busy subway station. You might recall a similar looking device used in the Boston Marathon terrorist attacks. They were left just blocks from the 9-11 memorial, the scare coming just minutes before a similar discovery across town in the Chelsea neighborhood. That's where someone left another rice cooker outside next to a trash can. Investigators say this may or may not be related to the first two devices, I want to bring in uh, former CIA and FBI official uh, Phil Mudd. He's also author of the new book called Black Sight, the CIA in the post-9-11 world. Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Uh, um, police are stopping short of saying this guy is a suspect. But obviously putting rice cookers on a subway mezzanine and another on a platform isn't normal behavior. Oh, heck, yeah. I don't see a lot of difference between person of interest and suspect. They're still hunting him. Easier to say, easier to say he's a person of interest we questioned him, and now he's a suspect. And to step it back and say, we think he's a suspect, we ought to charge him, and then say, actually, we were wrong from the outset. They're hunting him. They'll find him. I don't see a big di- distinction between person of interest and suspect. Investigators say, as of now, they're investigating this as a hoax. What does that mean to you? Look, the investigators have a lot of experience in devices like this. They've seen them in New York City, pressure devices. They saw them as recently as a couple of years ago in Chelsea in New York City. I suspect that the, uh, the, bomb techs, the bomb technicians have already looked at the device and said it won't explode. That's not to say the individual won't be charged. That's to say we looked at the device. If he tried to explode it, it wouldn't happen. So that's a hoax. It's also potentially a federal charge. And um, obviously... The two uh, anti-terrorist officers who are on patrol were the, were the ones yeah. that were first alerted yeah. about the suspicious devices. It seems to be like a kind of proactive, protective measure to have people like this out there. Yeah, that's true. But look back at what we've had. And this goes back 10, 12, 15 years. Devices in uh, trash cans, in subways. If you have a backpack that's unattended, if you have a rice cooker, a pressure cooker in a trash can, if you have a pressure cooker in the subway. You know, you look at that and say, regardless of whether that thing's an explosive device, if, if it's unattended, if, the, if, it's, if there's nobody around, you've got to say, we've got to be worried about that. That's sort of a new normal. Would you call this a success story in the sense that they were spotted, the officials came in, nothing happened, even if it was a, a hoax? Oh, heck, yeah. Look, look at what every American says today. See something, say something. Whether it's an unusual person or a backpack that's unattended, now it's a rice cooker potentially that's unattended. You want people to say, if I see something that's unusual, and I ride the metro in D.C. all the time, if I saw a backpack or a rice cooker that was unattended, I'd say, somebody's got to know. I'm not sure it's a device, but somebody's got to know about that. This is a success. All right, Phil Mudd, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Some 2020 presidential hopefuls are mixing politics with faith today in hopes of attracting some key voters. That's next. In our 2020 lead today, a handful of Democratic presidential hopefuls courting today one of the most crucial blocks to winning the Democratic nomination and ultimately the White House, African-American voters. And a new poll fueling Democrats shows not one, not two, but four of the 2020 Democrats beating Trump in a hypothetical matchup. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz reports now from the campaign trail in Atlanta. Faith and politics taking center stage in the Democratic primary today as three 2020 hopefuls made their pitch to African-American church leaders and black millennial voters in Atlanta. 
Christ does not strengthen you to sit on the sidelines. Christ does not strengthen you to sit on the couch. This is not a spectator sport. Cory Booker joined today by Julian Castro and Pete Buttigieg, with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders speaking Saturday. Buttigieg, who has struggled to build support among black voters, hoping to make inroads with an electorate key to winning the Democratic nomination. I get why voters are cynical right now, because I think a lot of promises have been made. Promises have been made to black Americans, and they have not been kept. But the openly gay South Bend mayor also not directly addressing whether his sexuality might add to the challenge of winning over some black voters. Do you think that black voters of faith may have a difficult time connecting with you, particularly because some may have very conservative religious or moral beliefs around homosexuality? I think the biggest thing on the minds of black voters and all voters is what difference our candidacies will make in their lives. A new Fox News poll shows Joe Biden maintaining his frontrunner status with 31 percent support, with Elizabeth Warren surging into second at 20 percent. She's followed by Bernie Sanders at 10 percent and Kamala Harris at 8 percent. All four Democrats also lead President Trump in potential head-to-head matchups, with Biden holding a 12-point advantage. This as Beto O'Rourke rolls out a new plan to combat gun violence, proposing a mandatory buyback of assault-style rifles and a national gun registry. It comes in the wake of the mass shootings in Dayton and O'Rourke's hometown of El Paso. I owe my family, my community, my country, my very best. Now, tomorrow, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders will take the stage just behind me to make their pitch to church leaders and black millennial voters here. And the two candidates, Warren and Sanders, are among the top in terms of polling with African-American voters. And tomorrow, Jake, they will continue to try to make inroads with this very critical electorate of African-American voters needed to win the Democratic nomination. Jake. All right, Vanessa, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Um, uh, Laura, let me start with you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's complicated, I think, uh, why African-American voters have not yet uh, come to like Pete Buttigieg the way he needs them to. But one theory uh, is just that black Democrats are actually more moderate than white Democrats, and Biden is the more moderate candidate. Well, I think uh, right there, there's two things. So I th- the reason I think that Biden looks as though he has more support amongst black voters is because that older black voters are polled more heavily than younger black voters. And so young... Because they turn out more. Be- older voters in general. Right, yes. Yeah. Although 2018 suggests, numbers from 2018 suggest that millennials turned out more than baby boomers and those older than baby boomers. So if that trend line keeps in 2020, then younger voters could potentially surpass hmm. uh, older voters. But... Uh, Young millennial voters, whether they're black or they're Latino, are much or trending much more towards candidates like Warren and like Sanders. And Buttigieg is a bit in the middle. So that is possibly why he's having difficulty, because he's trying to pull from both and not really energizing either of those two segments. What do you make of the theory that that African-American voters are generally more conservative on social issues Mm -hmm. uh, and may not embrace an openly gay candidate like Mayor Pete? I think there's a lot there anecdotally, but what we're also seeing is African-American voters, the older generation, thinking, 
who will other people vote for? I, you know, our, historically we have fought so hard for the right to vote as people of color and black people specifically. So I don't want to throw away my vote on somebody who's really not going to make the cut or be able to stand up to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And then Mayor Pete comes into this uh, with, frankly, some baggage of not. And he said he has had his own evolution and growth uh, on issues dealing with police brutality, uh, on Black Lives Matter, uh, and understanding the relationship in his own community between a black police chief who was fired, uh, even though there was racist comments within his police unit. And it leads to the idea that, well, if you can't handle this in your own community, how can you handle it at the national scale? I think with millennial voters, as you said, be going to be the largest voting bloc in this next coming election, we're starting to see people demand that uh, people already are aware versus becoming evolved in the process. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a challenge as black uh, voters and as candidates are looking to move more to the left. Uh, and David, I wanted to get your view on, on this Fox News poll that shows these hypothetical uh, 2020 matchups showing that Biden, Sanders, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren all not only beat Trump, but but they all keep him below 40 percent. Now, again, it's August. It's 2019. We are a life, several lifetimes away from the election. Um, but- and, and again, I'll just say like numbers when I when 2016 during the election, we, we were at 39 percent when Trump won Pennsylvania. 39%. So Approval in the state, in of, the Pennsylvania. state of Pennsylvania. So I'm, I'm not super worried about any numbers right now. Uh, it's a long way away. The interesting thing I, I do think about these numbers is you look at the vice president's number here, uh, 30%, Biden. you have Biden's numbers, and, and you look at, you know, Harris rising and some of these other folks that moved, uh, excuse me, a Warren rising and some of the other folks moving. You got a question, when those people start dropping out of the race, where do those votes go? Do they go to Biden or do they go to Warren? Does, does her, you know, does her number, do her numbers continue to surge? Like who's going to be the beneficiary of a, of a narrower, narrower field? What do you think of that? Because we had one drop out this uh, this week. Uh, Hickenlooper might run for Senate. Um, he doesn't didn't have a tremendous amount I know of support. Where his voters are going to get yeah. <laughs> but uh, but ultimately, some of these lower tier candidates are going to drop out, and those voters are going to have to to pick a lane, going to have to pick a candidate. Well, absolutely, and you can kind of see. So I, I don't want to go through who's going to drop out and who won't, but you can see some of the more moderate folks at the at the bottom of the tier going to someone like a Biden or even a Harris, depending on you know the policies you're talking about. And Bernie and Warren seem to be pulling from each other right now. Right. Well, you saw in this particular poll, it's something like young. Younger voters started going toward Warren, where in the past they had been, and more progressive voters had been more Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that could be for any number of reasons. We were talking about at the break what a good retail politician Elizabeth Warren is, and how good she is at explaining her policies versus Bernie Sanders, where the New York Times did this whole very funny um, piece uh, at the Iowa State Fair, where Bernie Sanders didn't talk to anybody because yeah. he's just that's not his style. So, and what he's saying isn't fresh. In the same way, it, it's very similar to what Elizabeth Warren is saying. But it's not new anymore. Right, because he did it in 2015. The Beto voters, Julian Castro, where, where, do the, where do the progressives go when it's all, when it's all said? Well, I, I mean, as you're suggesting, uh, Sanders and Warren, I suppose. We're, we're seeing the, the rise of the blue no matter who, because every, every single one of these yeah. in the Fox News poll, the uh, Trump's favorables were really low. Okay, everyone stick around. Up next, an American mother's heartbreaking fight. She's trapped in Saudi Arabia fighting for custody of her daughter because the Saudi court says she's too Western to raise her. Stay with us. Our buried lead now. Those are stories we think are not getting enough attention. An American woman is expected to appeal a Saudi court ruling this weekend after she divorced her allegedly abusive Saudi husband and was denied custody of their daughter. A Saudi judge ruling that she's unfit to raise her four-year-old daughter, Zaina, because she's a Westerner who is too new to Islam. This, of course, highlights the struggles that women continue to face in a place where the laws are geared to keep it a man's world. CNN's Nick Watt has the story. Oh, no! 
Meet Bethany Vieira and her four-year-old daughter, Zaina. They're in Saudi Arabia. You mind? Cell phone videos. All the contact grandma and granddad back home in Wenatchee, Washington, have right now. All the contact they might ever have. If Zaina can't leave, she won't leave. It makes perfect sense that she won't give up. We also realize that she may lose her life doing this, or we may never see her again. Bethany has divorced her Saudi husband, claims he was an abusive drug user, which he denies. I messaged him for comment, but got no reply. A Saudi judge just denied Bethany Vieira, an American citizen, custody of her own daughter, ruling the mother is new to Islam, is a foreigner in this country, and continues to definitively embrace the customs and traditions of her upbringing. We must avoid exposing Zaina to these customs and traditions, especially at this early age. We may have different languages, but we're really the same. We're human beings. We should be able to get along. Custody of Zaina now officially given to her Saudi grandmother. Both Bethany and her ex were found unfit. Her parents tell us there's now a warrant out for Bethany's arrest after she allegedly missed a visitation that her parents say she wasn't even told about that Bethany's been banned from leaving the country for 10 years and been told not to talk to the press. That's why we're talking to mum and dad. She wants to be able to have the right to go and come. She used to have that right. Bethany uh, won't give up and because and, that's her, her daughter. Saudi Arabia has softened slightly. The past few years, women for the first time have been allowed to compete at the Olympics, vote in local elections, drive cars. But this remains one of the most male-dominated societies on earth, the so-called guardianship system still in effect. Which means that a woman from birth until death must have a male guardian. The idea is that they are not capable and they and that men know better. Under Saudi law, a woman's word still worth half that of a man's. One plus one equal two. According to the judge who took Zaina away from her mother, she'd been speaking too much English, not assimilating into Arab culture. Bethany was talking to lawyers and Zaina overheard the verdict, started counting in Arabic to prove that she could speak it. A State Department official told CNN due to privacy considerations, we will not have a specific comment at this time. Our embassies and consulates abroad have no greater responsibility than the protection of U.S. citizens overseas, but added that U.S. citizens abroad are subject to local laws. We love our granddaughter. I think our deepest fear is that we might not ever see her again. And Bethany Vieira is going to file her appeal of the judge's verdict on Sunday. She is hoping it is successful. She is hoping that someday she and little Zaina will be able to come back here to Wenatchee, Washington for a visit. Jake. Nick Watt, thanks so much for that story. Appreciate it. Coming up, the CIA also calls out to Alexa. That's next. Today is the first full day on the job for the new acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, and he has a partner in trying to protect the nation's secrets, a partner that might surprise you, Amazon, which brings us to a brand new documentary that airs tonight on CNN, hosted by CNN's Poppy Harlow, who explores how a retail giant, once known just for online shopping, is working with the U.S. government to try to protect national security. Poppy, how exactly does this partnership work? 
Hi, Jake. Well, most of us know Amazon as the everything store where you can buy just about anything online and have it delivered to your door, sometimes within just a few hours. But working on this special documentary report, The Age of Amazon, we take a look at just how much more there is to the tech giant than online shopping. In fact, Amazon's most powerful business may be one that many people don't know a lot about at all. It's cloud business or Amazon Web Services, known as AWS. I sat down with AWS CEO Andy Jassy, who is one of Jeff Bezos's top leaders, who many people call the most powerful man in the cloud. Look. In the beginning, a lot of companies would poo-poo the cloud and say that nobody was going to use it for anything interesting. And when the value proposition is that good for consumers, you can howl at the wind all you want, but you can't fight gravity. Thirteen years later, the cloud is now a $70 billion industry. And while formidable competitors have emerged, Amazon continues to dominate with a seemingly endless list of customers, from Fortune 500 companies to tech startups to, yes, CNN, even secretive government agencies, including the CIA. The cloud is crucial to the economy. It's now crucial to national security. Do you think there should be more federal regulation of it? Governments are going to make their own decisions on what they feel like they need to regulate and what they feel like they don't need to regulate. And we expect that uh, governments will, will want to understand how we're operating as more and more workloads are being put on top of AWS. For now, the federal government is busy deciding how much more of the nation's most sensitive data it wants to place in Amazon's hands. AWS is a final contender for the JEDI contract, a $10 billion Pentagon deal that would involve hosting government data for operations critical to military missions across the globe. We think it's integral for the Department of Defense to have access to the most sophisticated cutting-edge technology that exists, period. Does having that much power give you pause? We have over 3,000 government agencies using AWS in a significant way. That's a significant responsibility. We're aware of that. And Jake, Amazon's dominance of the cloud market has caught the attention of President Trump. Earlier this month, the president's new defense secretary made a surprise announcement that he plans to again review the lucrative Defense Department contract before it is awarded, potentially to Amazon, which has made a huge bid for it. So to be continued if Amazon lands that deal. But as you will see in this documentary, it is one of many fascinating twists and turns of Amazon's 25-year journey. And we hope you will watch it tonight. Thanks, Poppy. The CNN special report, The Age of Amazon, airs tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. And of course, be sure to tune in to CNN State of the Union this Sunday morning. My guest will be Democratic presidential candidate Mayor Pete Buttigieg and President Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I will see you Sunday morning. Thanks so much for watching. Have a great weekend. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.